Welcome to the Morality of Everyday Things. On today's episode, we will be answering the question, are landlords evil? But what are we really asking here? Yeah, I think it's it's worth immediately clarifying. We're not just looking at the cases of useless or, or intentionally uncooperative landlords who are making life hard. Though that, you know, that would be a factor that we'll consider. What we mean is, is there something morally wrong with landlords making money from owning homes? When many people are unable to even afford to own one, just the one property that they want to actually live in. <laughs> Should owning an essential asset or owning an asset in general really be a way of, of making money? What are the conditions where that, you know, actually... Mm. kind of isn't that productive for society. And should landlords be able to charge high rents on multiple properties when there is a shortage of affordable housing in the first place? I'm Jake. I'm Ant. And together we run this podcast, The Morality of Everyday Things. Welcome. We just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's left reviews. Really appreciate it. See the review counter going up on Spotify. Yeah, it's awesome. Gives us a warm, happy feeling. (laughs) That's what it's all about, really. And also, of course, there should have been a pre-roll thing, but we now have a uh, ACAS Plus membership if you don't want to bother hearing the pre-roll and post-roll ads and maybe mid-roll. We haven't decided if we're going to include those, but we'll we'll do it nicely. (laughs) Big shout out to the Dream Factory for these lovely new microphones, which really make us sound bassy. Yeah. Um, It's perfect. Really sexy. Yeah. Perfect for my... um, Rick and Morty impression. What is my purpose? (laughs) (laughs) You pass butter. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Uh, Also, we have a TikTok, so check that out. Back to the show. Are landlords evil? Let's start with some definitions. Okay. Who are we talking about when we are talking about landlords and their potentially being evil? Well, generally, a landlord is classified as someone who is the owner of a house or some form of real estate who then rents this out to someone else. It's worth clarifying. I don't think this is a literal definition, maybe this is an us definition, but there, there are two types of landlords that we really want to think about. The, mm-hmm. the one is the, the professional, right? You imagine a guy in a suit, don't you? Uh, <laughs> and the other one is the, the accidental. A professional landlord is someone who, who rents out properties for monetary gain. That, that's really the aim. Often mm-hmm. they'll have something called a property portfolio, which means that they have multiple properties and their sole job is to be a landlord. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you've seen these guys on Instagram and TikTok where it's like, hey you, do you want to own five properties you've never worked <laughs> yet? And like those guys, that's what we're talking about. They are purely speculators who are looking to make money and this is just a way of doing it. That's why they're in the market. They're in the market to make money. They're investors. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end of the scale is the accidental landlord that you, well, you called it the accidental landlord. And I guess what we mean here is someone who might have inherited a property and lets that property out while waiting for it to sell or just like while they're deciding what to do with it. Or maybe, you know, it could also be that you don't need to sell, but like you, you kind of ended up with a property yeah. and you're renting out to manage the costs of it. That's you, it. You, the point is you didn't enter the market because you're like, this is a hot investment topic. <laughs> That's right. You fall somewhere in the middle, you end up owning a house, you might rent out like, or you, actually, yeah, it could be someone where it's, it's your own house, but you rent out a spare room or something like that. Yeah. It's it's incidental. It's not like, this is my purpose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's not a money-making scheme is the point. So really we're, we're more focused on that kind of professional rather than uh, what mm-hmm. we call the accidental, I guess you could call it incidental, co- coincidental, I don't know, (laughs) landlord, the person who's really thinking about their property as an asset, you know, in a spreadsheet, really, they'll duck out of the market if it becomes less attractive. I mean, that's a pretty key thing, whereas the the incidental one probably won't. And they'll move it to, say, the stock market or some other investment opportunity. You know, genuinely, I actually, I mean, this is obvious. It's one of those things where the world is so big, you can place any bet reasonably and there'll be some people. But, Mm. you know, for example, there'll be a bunch of people who saw crypto going up and they're like, I'm selling some of my buy-to-let portfolio to put into Bitcoin. (laughs) Like that that will have been a thing that happened, right? That's the kind of people we're talking about. You're you're saying that there's an opportunity cost. That's Mm. the key point. Yep. And, you know, some people might hear that and be like, well... How big a problem is this? Uh, I refer you to the uh, 08 crash. <laughs> uh, but no, we'll, we'll come back to that. But uh, some serious stats. So in the UK, 57% of landlords own more than one property, with 18% of people owning almost half 
of all tenancies in the UK or, or wow. managing almost half of all tenancies in the UK. That's a pretty stark stat, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think actually even that, that phrase, 57% of landlords own more than one property, like that doesn't, I've heard people say that about like Airbnbs and stuff before, that doesn't put into perspective how concentrated it is. Mm. Because that means at least two, but a lot of those people are going to own big portfolios, right? That's it's, basi- right. It, it's basically saying that the majority of property is actually owned by people who own more than one property. Yeah. And you look at that 18% who own almost half the tenancies. Yeah. Those are going to be people yeah. where yeah. it's yeah. like, it's that exponential decay. Yep. Yeah. And actually- A small number who own the majority. A small off script point, one that we didn't mention. I think there's also like a third class of uh, landlord worth considering. This one I would describe as the landed gentry. Right. Uh, you mean the monarchy? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. No, what I mean there is just like there's a certain there's a certain level. You, the accidental stuff makes sense. You know, you inherit something, whatever. Maybe you keep it. Fine. But you know, at some point, when you know, when you inherit ten percent of the available property in the UK, like the royal family, <laughs> at some point it starts to be a problem, and you you can't help basically being kind of professional with the amount that you own. I mean, certainly if you're at the point where you don't work because of your inheritance, then you know suddenly it's like, well, this is suddenly your job. <laughs> yeah, and 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 the reason this is the problem is what we're about to come to is that there is currently a housing crisis in the UK. In fact, it's not just in the UK. It's basically every major metropolitan area in the Western world. Yeah, a lot of the USA as well. Yeah, a lot of our listeners in the US and I don't think, you know, when you say there's a housing crisis in the UK, they're going to say, hey, (laughs) us too. Unless you're listening from somewhere in the Midwest, in which case maybe you're actually having a kind of thriving property market in a positive way. Hmm. So let's give you a quick sort of history of the housing crisis. What do we mean or where have we ended up? A housing crisis, just to define it, is when there is a shortage of housing, particularly affordable housing. What is so bad about this is that not only does it mean that people struggle to be able to afford to buy a house, especially first-time buyers, but it also tends to drive up the rents that you pay when you're not buying a house and you're just living somewhere. Yeah, I think really quickly, just I'm sure that we say it somewhere later, um, but just to draw a quick thing, like it's really interesting because you know a lot of economists would be like supply and demand, supply mm. and demand fix everything, uh, but they kind of forget the fact that like the ownership and the rental markets, there's some amount that's like no overlap, but there's a huge amount where it's it is an overlap and it's substitutable. And basically, the, the, why is it driving up rents? Because more people can't go into the ownership market, so they have to go into the rental market, which and, drives up demand. Which drives up demand, and then those people say it's full of speculators who are owning places who want to rent out. Suddenly, like there's a we'll come to this. We'll talk to buy to let, etc. About buy to let, etc. But like suddenly, there's this floor where it's like, well, I have this mortgage and I have to cover my mortgage. Mm. You know, that I've taken on to rent this place out to make a profit. So suddenly, rents are pushed up. But yeah, that's sorry, it. Sorry, carry on. No, no, it's, it's a really good point. It's it's that substitute effect. If if everyone only ever owned houses and you couldn't rent houses. Supply and demand probably would equilibrate the market. Well, actually, rent would then be really, really, really high, right? Because yeah. Well, it wouldn't you'd exist. be paying a huge. Yeah. You'd, well, it, say there was a tiny one, you'd be okay. paying a huge <laughs> premium to be like someone who's only staying in this country for a couple of years. Right? Sure, 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 sure. The fact that they exist and one feeds off the other is is what drives um, the disequilibrium mm-hmm. of supply yep. and demand. And so, just another really quick point. Lots of caveats. Traditionally. The reason people got mortgages rather than renting was because mortgages were cheaper than renting, mm-hmm. right? Now that's overwhelmingly not the case because it's typical to have like a 5 or 10% deposit on a very expensive house. Mm. So actually a mortgage could be more expensive than renting, but people are like, it's okay, I'm getting on the ladder. Um, <laughs> sorry, carry on. Must get on that ladder. No, but it's really true. And, it, and I think actually the reason there's a crisis now is because rents are exorbitant, but also getting on the property ladder is unfeasible. <laughs> and then you are actually, yeah. You kind of have to live in canal boats. (laughs) (laughs) There are many factors that have gone into this development, 
But probably two of the most crucial policies that led to this in the UK were the right to buy policy, which was encouraged by the Thatcher government to enable council tenants to buy their homes for a reduced price. And the other was the buy to let initiative launched by private lenders in the early noughties. And this enabled landlords to invest in property more easily by offering specialist mortgage rates that took into account rent. Basically, they created financial instruments, mortgages, where, you know, normally when you get a mortgage, a personal mortgage, it's like, oh, what's your salary, right? Mm -hmm. These were now mortgage products where it was like, oh, you're going to buy this place and rent it out. Mm -hmm. What's the rent going to be? And we'll use that to support your mortgage. Right. That's it. Uh, which allowed a bunch of people to enter. And then the, yeah, the right to buy, like, oh, you know what, this is a stat we should have got before. But basically the Thatcher government was like, this is something we'll discuss. Thatcher government was like, it's very important that everyone owns a home. Same with mm. Reagan. It, it was actually like a kind of- Coincided, it was like an 80s thing, wasn't it? Yeah. It's no coincidence that the 08 crisis, largely property-based, was, uh, or property issues there, was, you know, both UK and US. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that Thatcher-Reagan era obsession with owning a home. We sold an obscene amount of social housing off. It's interesting because some countries, again, I'm sure we'll talk about later, like Germany, have a, have much more social housing and, and it's much more normal to rent for extended mm. periods. And because the rent is affordable, that's fine. Mm -hmm. To give you an idea of what this led to, in 1970, pre-Thatcher-Reagan, a house was worth, it cost something like 4K. That's just under 5X the then average annual salary. In 2022... The average UK house price is now about 280k, which is 11 times the average annual salary. Wow. So so that means it's more than twice as difficult in mm -hmm. real terms in to, real act terms. to actually buy a house. Yep. Um, and then considering that you're paying off interest on a mortgage, that makes it kind of infinitely, not infinitely, but like a little bit harder even than that. Mm -hmm. A lot of time you're just paying off interest. And also worth noting, we've given like averages there, like it's, you know, we said five times average annual salary versus 11 times average annual salary. We know that actually over time, salaries have become uh, the, the distribution. You know, normally you get this little like bell curve. It has become less centered around the average. So like yeah. whilst the average is still true, less people are actually at or near that exactly. average point. There's, you got a small a number of very rich people dragging that number up yeah, to the side. There's a few people dragging that up. If you are in the bottom 50%, it is even harder than two times harder. Yeah. It's probably more like three times harder. Three or, or maybe four, four times. times harder. Yeah. But these policies happened before the 21st century. So why, why is it pertinent now? Well, one factor is the financial burden on individuals and families that has been caused by the pandemic, which went hand in hand with a rise in house prices during the race for space. That happened when the UK was in lockdown and the demand for larger houses drove housing prices up. This is made worse by the fact that the UK is currently also in a cost of living crisis, which is that prices for essential goods have increased faster than household income. So whilst rents are rising because of the housing crisis, in general, household income is not increasing enough to offset these rising costs. And that's when you talked about like real incomes, that inflation adjusted yeah. effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's why. So just to clarify, the reason we gave those numbers in terms of like five times average annual salary at the time, 11 times average annual mm -hmm. salary at the time is because some amount of the difference between four and 280,000 is going to be the inflation over that 40 year period, 50 year period, which you know, actually, you know, considering at the moment inflation is 10%, like, mm. you know, it can be, it can add up, right? Yeah, it gets steep. So part of the problem is that when the rent is high, there is also a lack of affordable properties available to rent. And this clashes with the idea that safe and adequate housing is a fundamental need, right? I mean, it's kind of obvious, <laughs> mm. uh, meaning that we think, you know, that means that we think every person should have access to housing, right? Yeah. Well, when we, uh, for any listeners who listened to our last episode, one of the things we looked at was Maslow's hierarchy of needs and housing is... At the base. Yeah, it's right at the base. It's one above a physiological need like water and No, food. I think shelter is but up there. Shelter is up there too, to be fair. You're no, right. It like, goes like, shelter and then belonging. Like, and think, I guess think about think about like desert island advice, mm. right? The advice is like the three things <laughs> that you need to find immediately are like fresh water, shelter, and food. And then discs. Discs. That's true. That's desert island. Very funny. And I think also um <laughs> 
I saw something the other day. Someone sent me a picture of uh, Maslow's hierarchy, and apparently sex was in the base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, that's interesting. I, 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 I would have assumed it's either physiological or it's one of those belonging ones where it's like I would have. I, I wouldn't have put it in the physiological because, like, there are you know what about um what about what's eunuchs. They survive without sex. So clearly it's not at the base of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. Base of the pyramid should be like, you, your body stops functioning without this. And shelter is one of those, unless you live somewhere with a fantastic climate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, monks the same, I guess. Uh, that was a bit of a tangent. So in the UK, a right to housing or a right to somewhere to live, it's not really seen as a, a right. It's not a law. It's not considered a human right. That said, when you think about refugees, one of the main things that will send to them will be tents. Like, yeah, they'll be like long shelter. tents, shelters, etc. Right. Mm-hmm. Instead, and this is the big part of the problem and we'll kind of talk about this from a capitalist perspective, philosophical perspective. Instead, in the UK, housing is essentially viewed as a commodity right? Mm. rather than some sort of necessary good. More specifically, it's it's actually seen as an investment class. That's it. It's the real estate markets. It's everything we were just talking about. And I suppose um, the key question there is, should that be the case? Uh, it seems to me that it would be far preferable to live in a society that did view housing as a fundamental right. And that meant that there's this kind of safety net that... Oh, Jake, thanks for ruining the entire podcast by giving the answer early. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, we'll talk around how we get to that. But no, no, I, I agree. Like f- Fundamentally, like I know Jake has strong feelings on UBI. I have question marks about the how economically that would impact things. Mm-hmm. But I definitely like firmly believe however it is that you service it that people should have universal access to the basic things they need to basically meet the bottom level of Maslow's hierarchy that's it it's a sort of threshold effect another one interesting one sorry again a tangent I think people underestimate you know people always talk about freedom freedom blah 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 you know and like oh free markets uh, people choose their jobs and stuff right this providing these basic services for free is the way to optimize freedom because anybody who works at a job that they don't like because they have to Mm. is not free right? Mm-hmm. How do you make them free? Put them in a position where you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. And then the actual people providing the jobs have to have decent jobs that people are willing to do. Mm. And in a world where increasingly like more and more value is, is produced by fewer and fewer people, enough to cover everyone because of, you know, automation, machines, etc., whatever. That's not that crazy. Because also someone has to buy these goods, right? Anyway, so that was a tangent. Back to what we were saying. So a good term for what housing in the UK has become is an asset class. It's a term that refers to a group of investments. So real estate is commonly viewed as one kind of asset class compared to to stocks, for example. So that'd be like shares in a company. That's another kind of asset class. And I think where that kind of clashes, where, where, where there's a sort of discomfort about that is that in the UK, homelessness is obviously a really significant problem. For example. For example, yeah. This yeah. highlights it. It does. I don't know how reliable this stat is, but estimates say there's about 288,000 households being homeless. I that think, sounds a I little think, bit paradoxical, think, but household think, is just an economic term for uh, designating like a, a group of people. Yeah, like, like a family. A family, yeah. Um, I actually think, to be fair, I think I've heard the stat and I think that the exact phrasing is something like it is not in secure housing. Yeah. Something like that. So it's not that these, ho- there's not that there's 300,000 families Sleeping living on the, the street. Yeah. It's that they, you know, are maybe crashing another family's place or are in some sort of temporary government assistance or or something like that, right? It's that they don't have like a secure, stable home. I believe that. I, I need to double check that stat. And um, just to contrast that with a slightly clickbaity stat, there are nearly double that number of second homes in the UK. So mm. there's 500,000 second homes estimated and 288,000 households designated homeless. Yeah. So, so there there are literally enough homes for everyone. That's it. That's <laughs> there's it. more than enough homes for everyone. There's just not enough affordable homes. That's the big problem. So we've talked a lot here about the UK, but we said earlier, we realized that there are people listening to us all over the world, particularly in the USA. Hello, you guys. Howdy. So the situation Howdy, in America partner. is a slightly different, but not exactly great either. According to CNN, the US is in need of 3.8 to 5.5 million housing units 
due to a lack of affordable housing that was exacerbated by the pandemic. Similar to the UK, actually, in that respect. Yeah. So also worth noting, we, we keep using this term affordable housing, right? Something that we'll mention, but like because of this speculative and market nature of this commodity, it starts to be like, what's the most cash generative use of, of land mm-hmm. as opposed to what is the, you know, what, what do we need? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, like making caviar is more profitable than making bread. <laughs> uh, but sorry, just to, to jump back on that. Uh, in the pandemic in the US, like Jake said, it was exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, very similar to the UK, used the term uh, the race for space. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a home buying frenzy, frenzy that was driven by the fact that interest rates were low and that people wanted more space. Low interest rates are, are good for borrowers who need to borrow in order to be able to afford to buy. So like mm-hmm. your monthly cost of your mortgage is going to be lower because a big part of your mortgage is paying back interest. So when that number is one instead of two, it, it's a very tangible saving. So the point is borrowers take advantage of these low interest rates. Anyone who has a mortgage will know that like you often lock in a five-year rate, right? When you're in a low interest environment, a lot of people, there was a lot of talk like, oh, inflation is going to be really high. So a lot of people knew, okay, interest rates are going to jump. Everyone wanted to lock in their five-year mortgage. Perhaps more significant than this frenzy is the fact that the prices which are rising the fastest in America are the quote-unquote cheap and affordable homes, according to a Harvard study. Yeah. So this means that affordable houses are getting fewer and farther between shutting lower-income households out of the housing markets at an increasingly faster rate. Forcing them into the rental markets. Exactly. And like I say, because of this, this means that those who have purchased a house that is affordable are far less likely to sell, knowing there's a lack of houses just like theirs. So they kind of get locked in. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just this uh, race for locking in low interest rates or, or um, uh, you know, trying to, you know, genuine home buyers who are like, ah, it's you know, becoming out of reach, buy as soon as possible. You know, anyone who's watched any reality TV in the last decade mm-hmm. is going to be familiar with the home flippers. The kinda. home flippers. Uh, this is how I made 10 times my money. <laughs> buy a shitty place, fix it up. It's amazing. So since uh, 2016, people who buy homes to do them up and sell accounted for 6.1% of home sales in the wow, US. Wow, that's significant. Yeah, so more than one in 20 sales was someone who was buying it specifically to fix it and sell, mm. uh, which also limits affordable housing in the US, both because they're competing and driving up prices and also because by making the place nicer, it's less affordable. <laughs> yeah, that's part uh, of the reason they're, they're getting less yeah. and less cheap, right? Yeah. And sure, it's nice to have a nicer house, but the problem is that not everyone can afford the extra 20K, including a margin for the person who's made it. That said, we want to be fair on this. Actually, we'll be fair. We'll, we'll explain like the mixed nature of home flipping in a second. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, home flipping isn't just limited to the US. In 2020 in the UK, home flipping reached a 12-year high with about one in every 40 homes sold from the end of 2019 to 2020 being flipped houses. So what's that, like 2.5%? Fun fact, interestingly, it was Burnley where home flipping was so prolific, it was one in 12 houses. Well, this really speaks to what we're talking about, where like this is a particular problem in less affluent areas. Yeah, which Burnley uh, for, definitely is, right? For, for US listeners, the fact that you haven't heard of Burnley is probably... An indication. You might have heard of the football club. <laughs> you might have, you might have, but yeah, it's it's a it's a less affluent, uh, mid-sized town in the UK, and this is exactly it. These flippers focus on places where it's cheap to buy, quick fix. Yeah, exactly. That that drives up prices in in areas that probably are in more yep. need of affordable homes. Now, this is a, the mixed one though, because what do we think about home flipping? We'll come to the whole kind of the next section is should you be able to make money from owning an asset? We'll, we'll, we'll kind of signpost that. Little mixed on uh, on home flipping because at least there is value add in the process. It's a thing that we'll, we'll kind of come back to. But when you flip a house, at least you are taking something and improving its worth. And actually, I can say like, look, my family is lives in Athens, right? And anyone who's been to Athens, you know, stopped over on the way to an island or something, you know, it has its charm. But like the center of the main city is a concrete jungle, not in a nice way, mm-hmm. right? 
uh, or in a lot of parts, certainly. And part of the reason for that is on the flip side, their property market is underdeveloped. Mm. Right? So you, you can't really get any sort of commercial mortgage to fix somewhere up. And the result is that it's not really profitable for anyone to, any, and also people aren't generally that affluent. So places don't, with the exception of like some luxury areas, some luxury places, places mm. generally don't get fixed that much. You don't really have the flipping no, uh, culture. No. In the same so, then, way. so then on the on the flip side, you do end up with some <laughs> on places. On what side? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. On the other hand, you do end up with these places where like actually the the inability for these speculators, particularly flippers, to enter the market actually can limit the amount that the, the place like actually gets nicer. Mm. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag there. Uh, but in, I mean, I would say, you know, Say, for example, a bunch of foreign, and this is to some extent true, say, for example, a bunch of foreign speculators are coming and starting to flip houses, particularly in areas where, you know, it used to be affordable. Yeah, it starts to become a problem when local people can't actually afford to live there anymore. And that's starting that's to be it. an issue. Granted, it. Greece has a particular thing where, like, there's a high, high rate of multiple, you know, a household will have multiple homes. It's, mm-hmm. it's a specific case, but it's a little mixed is the point. Agreed. Agreed. It's interesting. Uh, and, and the big thing, like you said, was adding value. So that's yeah. one to keep in mind as we progress through the episode. Back to the main issue, though. Why aren't people just building more affordable housing? This, if I mean, this is, demand for it? this would be the the economic argument, right? Mm. Uh, it would be like, well, if it's, you know, if it's such high demand, why don't we just make more? The problem is that there, there are constraints, right? So one of the reasons is cost of land. Like there's less and less land, not just I mean, it's funny because you take a train through the UK and it's like, how the hell are we short of land? Uh, but no, it's, you, you don't realize <laughs> All there's this less, green and pleasant land. Exactly. There's less and less land that has been designated as buildable upon. And the cost of building developments on that land has also significantly increased. This is very particularly post-pandemic. Post-pandemic. Raw materials are, right, are right, crazy right. expensive. Oh, sorry. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But then also, I, I mean, this was a problem for a long time. Like We know that we were not building enough houses to keep up with demand. Effectively, this this combo, the difficulty with planning permission, the lack of places where it can be mm. done, the cost of building it, this then discourages developers from building affordable housing because if there's a shortage of land, the marginal cost of making luxury house versus a affordable house is actually not that high compared to the increase mm-hmm. in price, which is to say like to make a house that is twice the sale value mm-hmm. is not twice the cost, right? Yeah. Because so much of it is just going to be having the land, building the foundations, like the stuff you're going to have to do, whether the house is nice finishing or not, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they end up building luxury homes as much as possible. I mean, if you think about like any kind of, you know, you've gone through any town, like you see a new housing development, how many of them look like council blocks and how many of them look That's like, it. look like nice new houses, right? It's, it's always, it's always like premium living. Yeah. In like, yeah. That's exactly, it, it's basically to put it into numbers, to double the price of the house that you're then going to sell as a developer, it might, co- I, I'm making numbers up, but this is the maths of it, it might cost an extra 25% or 50%, right? Mm-hmm. So once you kind of have made the base and stuff, it's like, we may as well make it nice. That's right. All the incentives are there. I mean, to, to make that super explicit, if you were looking to build a house, you bought some land in London, you wanted to put up flats, all the incentives are there for you to just build luxury flats at that point. Yeah. Because the, the all you have to do is like, is not that yeah, it's just making the finishing nicer, furnishing them well, marketing and branding it yeah. well. The majority of the cost was still the land and just building. Yeah, all the essentials of plumbing and that shit. So <laughs> literally. <laughs> <laughs> you raise a really good point here as to as to why affordable homes are in short supply even though demand is so high. And and that disequilibrium is 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 certainly a problem in, in economic yep. terms. That's a bunch of context. Now I, you should be fairly confident. You're a housing expert. Well done. Uh, I think <laughs> Foxton's is hiring or whatever whatever the uh, retail uh, housing equivalent, real estate equivalent is in the US. You can work there now. 
This takes us to the next section. Should you be able to make money from owning an asset? Don't worry, we're not that Marxist, but maybe a little bit. We'll come back to it. Some would argue that all this is telling us is that there is a market for housing. There's demand, Mm -hmm. uh, and all that landlords are doing is meeting that demand by supplying houses to those who cannot buy. Well, Jake, what do we think of that? The problem is that landlords don't tend to add value to their properties. We talked about value before, so we're coming back to this. The value of the properties themselves may rise over time, but this is often not to do with the actions of the person who owns it. This is just because of like, it can be bubbles in the market or just the general trend of the market direction. Or the knowledge that more and more speculators are going to join, which doesn't mean that the fundamental value of the thing that you're... No, uh, that's the same dynamic as like crypto. Yep. Or perhaps, you know, because of demographics, more and more people are going to have to enter the market whether they want to or not, or you you expect immigration increases. Yeah. Uh, So unlike other capitalist exchanges, landlords are seemingly making money by virtue of owning something, right? Mm. Uh, You could argue that their money would be better off used to invest in something which would, for example, actually improve society or or contribute to innovation of some kind. Uh, And in fact, like another, another way of phrasing it is that the return that you make in investments is commensurate with the risk that you're taking, right? Mm-hmm. And there's kind of a sense in the West over the last 20, 30 years, 50 years, that you're not really taking a risk by owning housing, and yet you're generating a yield, right? Mm. And you're doing very minimal work as a lot. You don't have to do, like like we said, you don't need to do that, like you don't need to be the flipper, or maybe you're getting disproportionate or leverage returns on doing small improvements in the place, and then you're mm. doing minimal work, and you're somehow generating returns, despite the fact that you're not really doing, you know, generating that much value. And I think what's particularly weird with housing is that uh, when you talk about renting most assets, a lot of assets will depreciate over time. Not mm-hmm. necessarily stocks, that's cars. a different thing, but cars certainly, any machinery. Houses depreciate in some sense of like you'll have to do regular maintenance, but actually as an asset overall value, they don't. In mm-hmm. fact, the opposite tends to be true. So it, once, it, you've, once you've secured a house, yeah. you're actually like, your, your wealth is kind of sticky upwards. Yeah. Imagine if there was a severe limitation on how many cars we could make mm-hmm. and cars didn't have a natural kind of end of life. Right, mm. so you could use cars for you know hundreds of years. You can you can fix up an old cottage. It becomes annoying, but like you can fix up a, a medieval cottage into a house still, mm-hmm. or at least you can knock it down and use the land. Yeah, right. That's what it's more like. So some capitalists and libertarians would argue, make the argument that what an individual chooses to do with what they you know come to own is a matter of their own personal liberty. Uh, we shouldn't restrict this. Uh, you know, it's it, it's it's entirely justified. I mean, when you think about the entire network of interactions, there's no individual person who seems to be doing anything wrong. I'm choosing to buy a house. You're choosing to sell it to me. Then I'm choosing to rent it to someone. They're choosing to take the rental agreement. Right. That's it. And it's all done within the uh, constraints of the law. Everyone's happy. It's all legal. And, yep. uh, and it's all sort yep. of fair market exchange. Now, here's here's a nice example of this. Was it Robert Nozick? Can't remember. Nozick, Nozick, the, Nozick yeah. is a very famous <laughs> philosopher, a libertarian philosopher. Uh, it's a very famous thought experiment that can be used to kind of explain this, justify that one person could be able to earn a ton of money just by virtue of owning an asset or being an asset. So in this famous example, you know, he says Wilt Chamberlain. Let's call it Michael Jordan. Let's call it LeBron James, whatever. Yeah, uh, talking about famous basketball players, which yeah, I'm sure you all got. Famous but. people, Cristiano Ronaldo, Messi, whatever. Let's say that he says, I'll only play with my team if every time that I play, everyone who comes in chooses to contribute, you know, 10p, 25 cents, whatever. And this money will go straight to them, right? The Ronaldo tax. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the season, maybe they've earned an extra million, two million. It's kind of hard to, you know, they, they've stated like, hey, I'm, I'm happy to just not play, but these are my terms. 
and everyone has just accepted the terms. And so what's wrong here, right? Mm-hmm. Although at the end of it, the natural feeling is like, but this person has somehow extorted a million. <laughs> mm, yeah, they've extracted uh, extracted rent in a yeah. sense, right? Uh, but Nozick basically makes the argument that this is not injustice uh, and no one can reject the unequal wealth that results from, from this uh, famous sports person charging the extra money. The argument really for Nozick is that since there is nothing unjust about this, there are no grounds to prohibit capitalist acts between consenting adults, other than those that would be, according to Nozick, destroying personal liberty. Right. So sweatshops. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, maybe that's one that, that doesn't pass that caveat of personal liberty. Yeah, uh, that's right. Fair, so that's, that's, that's the point. Well, of like, I mean, a sweatshop generally is improving the personal liberty. I mean, you presume that the people in the sweatshops are, are better than their alternative. You're just taking advantage of the fact that they live somewhere where the alternative is so, so, so bad. Yeah, I think that's strictly true. It, it's, I guess in some ways it's about drawing the lines of consent in terms of um, yeah. bargaining power. And, and if you want to is... get sort of nuanced about it and, and you sort yeah. of say like, oh, actually someone's making a constrained choice because they don't have the bargaining power because they're this disadvantaged. Is, this is exactly it. This is coming back. It, it's all about where you set that bar, right? Because mm. he seems to be saying, as long as you're making it better for the person, it doesn't matter. And what we seem to be saying is, no, 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 there's a minimum acceptable threshold, mm. which, you know, in our case would be, there is some access to affordable housing, right? Mm. It's a bit like the person who's forced into a minimum wage job, right? It's exactly like that, yeah. yeah. Like, you're not limiting their personal liberty purely because the alternative is so bad. But mm. we should have constructed a, a, an environment where the alternative isn't that bad so they can genuinely freely choose that. Absolutely. And I mean, the logical conclusion if you extend Nozick's argument is that there's no grounds for any redistribution of wealth at all since there's no injustice being committed. Yep. And that's obviously, well, that's problematic. So, yep. And I think, oh, sorry, one other thing, taking this thought experiment and relating it to what we're talking about, aside from like the, you know, hey, what's the alternative baseline, etc. I think one really key thing about housing is that it's a fundamental human need. Right. Yeah. And also it's very, very expensive, right, mm-hmm. relative to people's incomes. The difference here is that we're asking a trivial amount of money for something that is purely, you know, entertainment, fun, uh, you know. 10, 10p, 25 cents, whatever you want to use as your thing to go and see mm-hmm. extra, to go and see a uh, sports person. You know, you might be a bit annoyed, but you don't lose out in the same way that when you can't access secure housing. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's fair. It's it's a very different like level of example. And that's the key point. Housing yep. is a necessary good. Uh, and, and so then the question, it begs the question, should there not be rules and regulations to treat it differently from other assets? Yeah. Thinking about assets more generally, though, before we talk again about housing specifically, right? Mm-hmm. Let's extrapolate away should you make money from owning an asset in general, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, the purpose of investment, when we think about a functioning economy, should be the generation of value, right? I mean, that, and that should be how you make your returns. Sure. The same way that a company should make profits from generating value and then extracting some proportion less than 100% of it, right? Mm-hmm. So that there is some net value gain to society. Otherwise, we should regulate that company out, out of existence. We don't want companies that are just sucking value from other places. It's bad mm. for society. Similarly, instead, you know, when we think about personal investment or, or people doing these kind of business activities, we have all these ways of generating yields, percentage returns, mm. without the need to really generate any value, just, just for holding assets. Uh, you know, to give an example, aside from housing, you know, even index funds... They're stocks on secondary markets, right? They don't actually help the businesses that you're investing in grow. Yeah, the money never actually reaches the business. No, no, no. As as soon as it's moved into the secondary market, it is kind of arbitrary who who owns it. Some exception with like market sentiment and like the fact that a secondary market means that liquidity existed in the first place and that's useful. Mm. Um, But then after the fact, like if I buy your Amazon share from you, Mm. makes no difference, right? I'm just holding a thing. I'm just speculating on whether it's going to go up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, So some amount matters, but it's not the same as giving money to the company to actually grow. That's economically useful. The fact that there is a market is useful, 
buying the shares itself doesn't matter. It's speculation. Speculation is the key word. So when you think about a bank, going back to like economic first principles, banks lend out money to people who can use the money to do something useful to eventually pay back the loan. And that's what creates value in the economy. Instead of investing in secondary markets, what have we just invested in primary markets? That's where the actual value lies. I mean, obviously, sometimes endeavors fail, businesses fail, uh, and then you lose money. (laughs) That's sad. Yep. for everyone involved. Yep. But when it works, it works. And that's how you yep. generate value. And that's how the cycle continues. And so to take the to take the analogy of housing, what if the way that people generated value was developing more housing, to some extent, fixing up more housing, but then you kind of want this outside force where it's like, okay, we want to make it unattractive to make, you know, we want to have a, a balance of affordable and unaffordable. So we'll, we'll change some requirements on and costs on buying and flipping, for example, like mm. we don't want people to buy and sell within the same year, because that's not what housing should be used for. That also means the house is empty for that year. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we should be taking a kind of third party regulatory environment and saying like a uh, perspective and saying, hey, this is what we want the market to look like. So, you know, first principles, get some land and materials, build a house, added value. Flipping, ha- flipping houses, a bit mixed, but, you know, hey, buy a house, fix it up, sell it, kind of added value, mixed case, depending on if you've distorted our number of affordable houses. But now, you know, when you think about a lot of like buy to let portfolio landlords, mm-hmm. they're doing the minimum to kind of increase the value, breaking it into more units, turning mm-hmm. it into student lets, turning it into Airbnbs to maximize yield, mm-hmm. minimizing your service to, to the people who are staying there because you want to save money. I mean, that's a point we made at the beginning. Yep. We were kind of joking when we said, when we talked about our landlords evil, we said, we're not talking about landlords being specifically uncooperative and nasty and all these yep. things. But actually there is a problem there in the fact that this particular market incentivizes landlords to do the minimum. Well, this is it. This is it. I mean, it, sorry, I, I lost my track there, but it's it, it's basically, you know, people talk about homo economicus. <laughs> this is like when you turn housing into an asset to maximize a yield, you become homo economicus, right? Yeah. I'm going to do the minimum to keep my tenants happy and to meet the the regulatory requirements because I want to maximize my yield, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so, and you start, like we said, you start doing things like split it into more bedrooms, turn it into student lets, turn it into Airbnbs, take it, take more out of that useful market and make it less livable, maximize your ability to make money. But are you adding value, mm. right? Let's take the example of like, here's a super bare bones, right? I can get a 25% buy to let deposit, uh, I can access a mortgage with 25% deposit on a house somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. It's it got a live-in tenant. And this is a real situation that people have. Like maybe it's got a live-in tenant or I'll find a new tenant, whatever. I buy the place. I don't need to do anything for to it. I, I want to be hands-off. Some estate agent's going to manage it. Mm-hmm. And I know it'll make me some yield per year. And every year, maybe I'll put X into like maintaining it, right? Mm. Should I be generating a profit for doing that? The fact that I could afford the 25% deposit for a buy-to-let mm-hmm. and then I'm doing nothing, it's like a hands-off asset. Should I be generating a profit from that when other people could actually buy that to live in? It doesn't seem fair. And it, it doesn't seem especially fair if, if you take the same example and you you were to Airbnb, it, say. And this, yeah. this is a problem that we've seen in Europe massively in the last decade. There was a real incentive for people to do that in city centers. Barcelona, big yeah. example. Amsterdam, I think the same. I mean, you could, you could point to places all over Europe and, and probably the world. And what you're doing there is you're driving out locals, you're, you're making the so house prices more unaffordable. People move out of cities where they've been used to living. And like you said, you're you're not really adding value. You're, no. you're, you're Well, no, I mean, the, the economic argument is like, if you are taking, you're taking some amount of risk because like house prices go down or whatever, and you're giving liquidity to the person who's selling it. But, you know, your returns should be commensurate with the risk you're taking. Mm-hmm. And basically, in an efficient market, the houses should basically be priced such that in the situation I just described, the house should be priced in such a way that the return is not appealing. 
Mm. The problem is people have access to so much leverage, which means I can basically 4x the value of my money because I can access all these mortgages. And then, you know, come back to supply and demand. The demand side of the market is flooded by these people who are just speculators. Mm. And that's what's kind of messing up the market. For anyone who wasn't sure if this seemed like a particularly moral question, I think we're driving at the moral heart of it here in terms of, you know, should you be entitled to extract rents without really adding that much value just by owning an asset? But I think what's also really important to remember is that all of this is totally subject to human control. Like the housing market doesn't exist in, you Mm. know, a bubble in a vacuum. It's it's entirely the construct. It's entirely constructed by human sort of creation. And we can set policies and rules. You know, it doesn't have to exist the way that it does. And we can we can adapt that and impose our sort of moral view on it. It's 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 so funny how so much of like policy and, and economics so many people act like it's like a law of physics. Right, exactly. <laughs> and they don't realize the entire thing is constructed by humans and can be shaped and controlled by humans. Like, don't get me wrong. Are there elements in supply and demand? And should there be an element of free market in this? Absolutely. Like, yeah. Prices should be set by a market. Mm-hmm. Should we be using policies to, for example, a problem we haven't yet mentioned, stop foreign investors laundering their money and taking houses out of supply altogether? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking Russian oligarchs who like need to you know, clean their money so they buy properties in London and they don't even live in them. Yeah, like look at most of Mayfair. Yeah, like seriously, like some of the nicest parts of London, they're just ghost towns. Yes, we should regulate that out of existence. Should we consider like, hey, if if not if there's not enough houses for everyone, you know, should we make it really expensive to buy a second or third home? We we do some amount of that, but you know, yes, like there should be more stringent policies because too many people still do. Should we make buy to let like leverage, which again is like that kind of like I put down X and I get four or five up to mm. 10 times my my buying power, which by the way, just to clarify as well, this is the problem that means that like, even if something generates a 2% return, which is mm-hmm. very low, it can become really attractive because I can only, uh, you know, I can put down only 25%. Uh, yeah. So it, then it's, you're, I've, I, it's like 2% becomes like 8%. It's four times as valuable. That's it. You're getting 2% on the 100% where you've only had to contribute like a quarter of that. This is the fundamental thing. Too much leverage, too much leverage. And then when things fail, they fail bloody hard. Right. Because mm. suddenly, you know, this is this is a way all over again. People are owning five homes and a two percent interest increase means that they can't afford any of them. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they suddenly all flood the market. So should we be making buy to let less affordable? Absolutely. I mean, to sum up this section, making money from owning an asset, high level is yes. People, you know, it's okay for people to make some money from assets, like but it's be it should be commensurate with risk, right? We should have policies in place to balance risk and reward uh, and not allow too much leverage because it's unhealthy for a system that leads to 08 style crashes. And it's about creating efficient market outcomes, uh, which is not what seems to be happening. That's it. Because if you're renting out a place, you are ultimately providing a service. If someone wants to come on holiday and stay somewhere, of course they can, you know, they should be able to access that if you if you want to rent it out. If someone needs somewhere to live, you should be able to rent it out. But it's about constructing the incentives, which, which really could just be a simple question of taxation. Yeah. It's about designing that in such a way that the, there's an equity that speculators are kind of yeah cut out of the market discouraged from the market yeah uh, speculators should focus on investing in things that are accretive for society that's it anyway guys sorry that was last bit was a little rambly we feel strongly in um it, and it's kind of taken us back and forth <laughs> a few different ideas but that's the end of the first section uh we will be back next week to discuss uh, is it justifiable to, justifiable specifically to encourage housing as an asset class and we'll also look at the sort of policy question around how could we solve the housing crisis yeah just a little reminder again please do leave a review feel free to become an acast plus member not just to avoid the ads but if you want to support us and check out our tiktok cool. too many requests and now Pick here's another ad to listen to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see you next week guys